I believe everyone has a story to share. I'm on a journey to discover the magic inside each person's story. Each week, I will introduce you to guests where I will dig deep and uncover the beautiful miracles from life and experiences to inspire and encourage you to live life to the fullest. My goal is to give each guest a platform to share their lives with the world in hopes that someone will be inspired to take action and live life with passion and purpose. Welcome to the Uncover Your Magic podcast with me, Ashley Goner. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome back to Uncover Your Magic. As you all know, my mission with this podcast is to bring on guests that will change our lives in such a positive way and that we all leave with life-changing tools so we are able to rise up and live our best life. Today's episode is just that. I found my next guest after I meditated one morning. I was asking God to lead me to someone with a magical message. When you are in alignment, and like Abraham Hicks says, when you are tapped in, tuned in, and turned on, the world is at your command. So the day I found Jesse Brizendine, I knew that was my answer. He had to be on my show. He exudes such love and a big heart of wanting to help people find their purpose and make a difference in this world. This quote from Nelson Mandela reminded me of Jesse. We can change the world and make it a better place. It is in your hands to make a difference. Jesse has done so much in his life to make a difference. You are going to love his story and love his heart. Before we get started, let me give you a little bit of his background. Jesse Brizendine is the creator of Zero Limits Coaching, a speaker and author who educates and empowers individuals and organizations to move beyond their limitations. Jesse has worked with thousands of people around the world, business leaders, Hollywood celebrities, mental health professionals, entrepreneurs, and educators, all utilized Jesse's services to break through limiting beliefs, uncover their unique purpose, and create fulfilled lives. Jesse has personally mentored nearly 2,000 people on their healing journeys after the loss of loved ones. And Jesse calls Santa Barbara, California home. There is so much magic to uncover here with Jesse. So without further ado, Welcome, Jesse, to Uncover Your Magic. Ashley, thank you so very much for having me and that beautiful introduction. It's an honor yes. to be here. Oh, it's an honor to have you. It's an honor to have learned about you. And I think when I was thinking about you, you are here to make a difference. If I was going to use one sentence, I just got that from you. Like, you just want to make a difference. And you do. And I think when I first started, I listened to your TEDx talk. I want to know how you got the TEDx talk too, but that TEDx talk was just like, whoa, I love the beginning. And I think I kind of want to start back there. And I think you have an amazing, I want people to understand your childhood kind of, and then kind of where you got to be today. Can we do that? Yeah. And I'll give you kind of the quick Cliff Notes version. I grew up in Northern, Northern California. It's the part of California that people think is Oregon. A lot of folks think California, Northern California is San Francisco. Actually, California is far bigger than that. And there's another 300 plus miles north of San Francisco before you get to Oregon. And that's where I grew up. Hmm. And I laugh and say San Francisco is technically Central California if you go by geography. Right. A little, little tiny town. And I was one of those kids who, you know, I don't know if you call it sensitive or self-aware or whatnot. But I had, a, I had a very pivotal moment early on in life where I remember I was probably about five, six years old. And we had, were over at a park riding bikes. And my mom looked at me and said, you asked me if I knew what a divorce was. And I said, I, I don't remember what I said exactly, but she said that she was considering leaving my father because they've been having some challenges. But she didn't want to leave him and that she, she was going to try to, and then asked if who, if she did leave, who would I, who would I want to live with? And then said that she didn't want to leave because she didn't want my brother and I to have to grow up in a separate home. Hmm. When I heard that, what I heard, 
how I interpreted that at five, six years old was my mom was going to sacrifice her happiness for me. And it was there for my job to make her happy. Much of my childhood then became about trying to do whatever I could to help bring my mom happiness. And it got to the point where I was feeling so much shame for her unhappiness, as I saw it, that when I was about eight, nine years old, I actually tried to take my life. Oh my gosh. I'd gone down into the woods behind my house, had stolen this big knife out of my father's room. And when I went down there, I was sobbing uncontrollably because I did not, I did not want to die. But what I had worked out in that time was because it seemed like so many of my parents' struggles were around money. And I had worked out in my mind that if I wasn't alive, it would save my mom money. If my mom was able oh to me, then I, she would be happy. And I would see my mom always going above and beyond, trying to make Christmases very special, trying to make birthdays really special. And she would go over the top trying to get all these presents, but then she would suffer for so long afterwards under the guilt, the shame, the burden of having whatever credit card debt she accumulated because of that. My thought was then that I would really be doing my mom an act of service, a great favor that if I wasn't there. So I went down to the forest behind my house, dropped down onto my knees, unsheathed the knife and pushed it to my chest. I, I was crying so hard because I did not want to die. I was terrified of dying. I was terrified of death. But I felt like it was the only way to make my mom happy because I felt like I was just literally like God's punishment to my parents. And as I started to push the knife into my chest, I was quite shocked to find out it wasn't easy. Like it seemed I, in the movies and TV shows I would saw. You know, in TV shows and movies, they often make death seem like such a simple act. It takes just a second and then, and just like that, when you cut to the next scene, the person who was killed is gone. Right. With it in real life, there was, it was pain. And so I started crying because of the pain, but I felt like I had to die. It was the only thing I could do to show my mom how much I cared by removing that burden from her. And then I pushed harder. I finally broke to the skin. And then when I started to see blood going down my chest, I got so scared of the the sight of my own blood that I just fell to the forest floor sobbing because I knew I couldn't fall through with it. I sat down there and cried for however long. And when I finally picked myself back up, I remember carrying myself back to the house, hanging my head in shame because now I felt not only was I a burden to my mom and her cause of whatever unhappiness, but that I was also now basically condemning her to a life of that. And this started a very difficult and challenging self-talk I had with myself for most of my childhood, which is I would, I would spend upwards of 20, 30 minutes a day in front of the mirror telling myself how horrible I was, what a waste of space I was, how I was God's punishment to my parents. I developed a, a, a behavior, we could call it, where I would spend 20 to 30 minutes a day before school picking my nose in this little hand mirror because I was so afraid that if there was one booger visible, I'm taller, so most people look up to me. <laughs> it we're visible that people would see me for the horrible, ugly person I saw myself as. Oh, my. well, going back to, so when people have, what do you think, like you're creating these limiting beliefs from that divorce that your mom, that you feel that shame for? Yeah, it's creating and it's interesting too. Like we, you know, they always say context is king in any dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. We will often we are often going to interpret things off of our belief systems, our values, the context, something is shared in. And we end up staking our flag, so to speak, into that belief system. Even if it might only be off this little itsy bitsy piece of information that was available. The itsy bitsy piece of information that was available to me was I was interpreting my mom struggling, being unhappy as my fault. Right. And so I, and look for a solution to it. Now, there was all this other information available too, right? It was also the other information was is to see how happy I made my mom. Right. That I was like the, the you know, my, myself and my brother were like the joy in my mom's life. But when you start to adopt a belief system, a limiting belief that is this or that, it's literally black and white, you start to put filters on or glasses that narrow your vision of the world so that you can only see the information, the details that is going to support that belief system you've chosen. What was your relationship with your father? You know, it was interesting. Like it wasn't anything spectacular or special. I took on this role of trying to keep my mom happy. And then when my mom would 
discuss with me how my dad was doing this or what he wasn't doing or how he wasn't doing this, I would start to resent my father because of the hardship I felt like he was causing my mom. It wasn't until after my dad died that I really had this awareness of my relationship with my father most of my life was not my relationship with my father. My relationship with my father was my mom's relationship with my dad. Mm-hmm. And I in my mom's eyes. And it, it took him passing away. It was actually, actually, it was one of the most heartbreaking but insightful moments of my life. My dad died on February 1st. And I drove, so from Southern California, where I live, up to Northern California that day, complete silence for the most part. And the next day, I went to his office to clean out his stuff. And it was one of those things that any of you who have lost a loved one, you know that there's this weird stillness that follows death. It's, it's, a, it's the most uncanny thing. And you know that whenever you see it in film or television, the, the director or whomever is creating it, you know that they've experienced a significant death when they film it with that stillness. There's like a silence to how they have it portray out. And the ones who I think haven't necessarily done that, they often will not do that. But there is there's a certain artistic piece that's added that just really amplifies the magnitude of what you're feeling. And so this stillness was following me up to my father's office. And I remember going to his office and sitting down at his computer and his desk was completely empty, save for a couple pictures. And I turned on his computer. I started clicking around and his desktop was remarkably empty too. There's a few file folders. Now there's a quick backstory to this too, where when I was 20, like for my 22nd birthday, I had saved every single card, birthday card, thank you card, Christmas card that anybody had ever saved me since I moved away from college. I just felt they were so meaningful. Mm-hmm. Card I didn't save, and it was from my dad. And my dad had written this card, and he put some money inside and, and signed it, love you, dad. Growing up, my mom had always told me my dad didn't care about birthdays, didn't care about Christmas. So it was her and her alone who would be the one that would go buy all the gifts, plan all the presents, do all the wrapping. And there was definitely some truth to that. Mm-hmm. Dad had a different upbringing than my mom did. My dad was making different life choices than my mom was. And whereas I should have been able to celebrate seeing my dad making that effort, be him going above and beyond to send something on his own to go. And this was back in the days too, where we were making cards on the computer. Oh, right. In that phase. So my dad card and printed it out. And rather than celebrating that, I took resentment, chose resentment and looked at it and saying, well, you know, you had your whole life, my whole life to do this and you never cared to do it before. So I took the money out, put it in my wallet and then tore up the card and threw it in the trash. Hmm. Literally yelled some explicitives at the card. So here it is, like, this is the only one. And still to this day, I, it's the only card I've never, I still save them. Now the, it's gone from a bag to I have this massive box of cards and whatnot. Mm, I do that too. Yeah, it, it's, it's really cool. And sometimes, you know, every now and then you go back and look through them. And it's neat to see like the, the people who come in out of life and their sentiments they share. And I find that now I'm in a place where I'm able to appreciate it more. But when I was at that place with my father and in his office looking through his computer, I'm clicking around and there's some, for whatever reason, there's this file that catches my eye. And I double click on it. Up on the screen pops a card I had torn up. Oh my gosh. And it was, it was so surreal because there was hardly anything on that computer. The computer was empty, but that card popped up. And when I sat there looking at this card, all of a sudden, my whole life changed in that moment. It was literally one of those moments where life completely changed. I, I saw that I had always learned to relate to my father through my mom's eyes. Mm-hmm. I, I really knew my dad died and me never really giving him a chance because I was judging him from my mom's perspective. And I also realized then very much so how oftentimes people do not do the things we wish they would. And rather than condemning them for not being as we wish they were, we can learn to celebrate them for who they are. Mm-hmm. And learn to celebrate them for the efforts they make. Because for my dad to make that, what it seems like it might be such a simple effort for you or I. It was like him climbing a mountain because it was just something he didn't do. It was something his parents didn't do. And what I could have really, what I missed the opportunity on seeing was what my dad was really doing is he was making a very bold declaration of how much he loved and cared about me. Right. But because I was so self-consumed with the story about my father, I completely missed it. Oh, but when you, what do you think the reason 
why do you think he came? It took him 22 years to be able to do that for you. You know, I thought a lot about that. And I, I think that's such a great question. I think that oftentimes in any dynamic, when we have one person that's really good at something, it kind of lets us off the hook. Mm-hmm. It's, it, if we're in a relationship, if one person's really great at cooking, we often don't offer to cook because they just seem so much greater. And in our minds, we think it would be such a, it would be such a down leveling if we took away the person who's great at cooking, but that person who's great at cooking, they very may, may very well love to have someone care enough about them to want to prepare a meal for them, even if it's not as gourmet as they are. And I think that's part of it with my dad is my mom was just really good at those things. You know, it was something that was super important to her to make sure people had cards, make sure people had presents, make sure everybody felt spoiled and special on their special days. And it, it gave my dad the, the pass for it. And then over time, through over whatever dysfunction and dynamics in their relationships, their relationship, they settled into their roles. Right. Of who they are to one another. And, you know, as kids, we look at our parents as these idealized versions of who we think they're supposed to be. And I think oftentimes we grow up, I, I think we're all going through life as wounded children. And part of those wounds are still trying to understand maybe the things that our parents did or didn't do at times or when we were younger. Right. When, when I was dating Richard, he was always cooking. He had all these amazing recipes and I would tell the girls, cause that's all I do is cook. I mean, I'm, he hasn't cooked maybe on a handful of times and the girls are always like, wow, dad, <laughs> you know, but it's true. You know, I, it's even like, I can relate to your, to your mom. I mean, you kind of have these roles, right. And they just say, well, they, uh, they rely on, we rely on each other for those specific things. And, you know, I, I think it's funny when, when you have children, they didn't know you when you were dating or before you had these roles, right. And they don't, they don't see them at all. They don't see my husband. They don't see their dad being the chef or, you know, cooking for me. It's just funny. So I just thought it is so true how we have that, where we just depend on that from the other, the other soul, the other person in the relationship for sure. Yeah, we really do. We, we fall into those and it becomes almost an expectation and we're not even intending it to be an expectation, but we've learned it to be such. And then we do a great disservice to the relationship to then expect versus being able to communicate. Right. But it's hard for us to communicate that which we're not even aware of. Right. Okay. So now we're in our late thirties. That was when you were 22. What took you from doing what you're doing now and coaching how did you get there and how did you get this revelation that you really wanted to help somebody or be like the life changer, be a, make a difference? Yeah. I'm a big believer that purpose is found in one of two places, ultimate pain or ultimate pleasure. And I'm definitely one of those ones that I've, I've found and refined purpose through my pain. The first real painful moment for me that kind of set me on this path was I was in college so going through this whole thing growing up, I had learned to be the most shy and insecure person you'd ever meet. My first day of high school, I broke out in hives. Actually, my first week of high school, my freshman year, I broke out in hives. I was so terrified of interacting with people, you know, whatever it was. I had to go to the hospital at one point to get the stomach exam to think and see if I had an ulcer. Huh. I mean, it was so bad that I, I remember one time my freshman year in college, I get down. So when I get into college, I have zero social skills. I'm horribly social awkward. There was a girl who sat behind me in my psych one class. And I remember her one day, she tapped me on the shoulder, asking me a question about the homework. I skipped red, skipped pink, went straight to purple, broke out in a full sweat. (laughs) Girl was talking to me. I had no idea how to even stutter anything out. Like stumble out something. I I would be lying to you if I said she ever sat next to me again after that. I noticed that. (laughs) Boyd sitting anywhere near me afterwards. And that was, that was really kind of who I was. And so what I learned very quickly in college was that if I got really drunk, I could let go of some of that self-consciousness and have fun and relax. Well, I got, I started to rely on alcohol a lot to do that. And what had happened was I had this moment going to the bathroom. So I, I lived on the first floor. It was a co-ed dorm. Again, I'm so socially awkward, but I had gone through these, this phase of, of being a really chunky little kid and then being a skinny big kid. Mm-hmm. And the skinny big kid, I started to get, I was tall, but when I went into college, it was like the height I am now, which is just under 6'4", but only weighed about 165 pounds. 
if I had, you could kind of see some stomach muscles. <laughs> so before I would go to the walk down to the bathroom, because the bathroom is kind of in the middle between the, the girl's side and the boy's side. Right. So I would do a bunch of push-ups and a bunch of sit-ups, and then I'd take my shirt off and walk down <laughs> to see if I could, you know, get some attention from girls. Oh, funny. Time. And I, when I got to the bathroom, I realized I was looking at the person in the mirror and I didn't recognize him at all. Huh. This person had started to get these dark circles under his eyes from the amount of partying he was doing. I was getting a beer belly. I was at a point where I was about ready to get kicked out of college because my grades were so horrible. I was on probation from the dorms because I had consumed so much alcohol one night that I spent three or four hours in the bathroom face down in a public bathroom oh everything yeah if that wasn't bad enough (laughs) and it was one of those moments where I I had this thought of you know what are you doing you gave yourself the shot to have a different life than the one you grew up in and you're about ready to throw it away because you're so shy you're so insecure you're so self-conscious that was one of the first moments where I really had that heart-to-heart conversation with myself and I realized I had power of choice Hmm. One of the things I think we don't realize is that we always have choice. We assume our emotions are just that and they're out of our control or they are a byproduct of what someone else says and does. You know, you make me feel this way. Nobody was making me feel that way. I was making me feel that way because of what I was saying to myself over and over again, what I learned to believe about myself. Long story short, I ended up making a pledge with myself then to turn my life around, started exercising, got my grades up. After college, I went into personal training, and once I got to a point in personal training where I felt like I had really done everything I wanted to do there, I knew that I needed to, to really make the impact in the world I wanted to make. I had to shift, and so that was where coaching and speaking became the, the target from there. Who was your mentors? Who did you go to? Did you read books? Did you go to seminars? Did you listen to probably at that time? I mean, I don't know. I'm probably dating myself, but was there sure podcasts or was yeah. it just a cassette tapes? <laughs> yeah. So the first mentor I had at eight years old was Arnold Schwarzenegger from the second Conan. Huh. There's a scene in it where they do the unveiling of Arnold and he's got all these muscles and whatnot. And I always kept that image in my mind of what could be possible with exercise. And then they... I, through education, I learned to hate to read. I loved reading growing up. And when I went to four-year college, they, they kind of drilled it right out of me because you're reading so many books that you have to read. And none of them were really particularly fun. The one that got me back into reading and really changed my life was Robin Sharma's The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. It was huh. such a simple, little, easy book to follow. But there was every single word in that book made sense to me. It was like, it was one of those books when you pick it up, it felt like the author wrote it for you. Uh-huh. And that was the one that really got me to start thinking and asking questions. There was one other person who was really influential in that early time, a lady who she had this very rare neuromuscular disease that basically would act as almost like an EMP shockwave where it would shut down her body without warning hmm. and the muscular system would kind of close down. And she would teach she contributed to the master's level psychology program at the university. She was super influential and in leaning into me exploring that because she, she saw where I wasn't willing to see myself. She saw someone who was really innately and intuitively good with people who was able to understand. And part of that I think came from just going through such painful stuff early on. I had a greater sensitivity to people's struggles Mm-hmm. And then with working with them through fitness, there's a contrast because everybody's coming to fitness to be better, be stronger, but there's still these underlying struggles for most that they're going through as they're going through life, whether it's the relationship or their career or whatever it is. And it was really incredible because I've talked to people every day about the challenges they were facing, but I was also, they were looking to me as this guide of like, how do I get stronger and through this? And Joyce was somebody who really leaned into me to exploring. And then once I got through that, started getting the coaching, then it was the, you know, you start to get the, find the folks in that industry. So the Tony Robbins, of course, the, I think I, I had came across Abraham Hicks during that time. Gosh, now I feel like it's probably everyone at some point. Right. I go on the, I go through right now I'm in an Abraham Hicks thing and then 
next week I'll be somewhere else and yeah. you know, the different podcasts, I'll binge listen to one that just resonates with me for a while. It's funny how you just kind of, I go in these little spurts, but did you go to class when you met Joyce? How did you meet her? She was a client, personal training client. Oh, okay. So training client. And what was really incredible with Joyce is so she had this condition that we didn't know. There was really no rhyme or reason at the time. And so when one time we were in a session and it happened and she's standing and then her body starts to contort like this and she's saying, uh-oh. And huh. I, I was asking her, Joyce, what can I do? And she goes, we just kind of have to wait and see. I said, Joyce, can I try something? And she said, yeah, sure. And I, and I, on my life, I could see, like, it looked like this, just big ball of energy that was, it looked like the traffic jam on the 405 at rush hour. Huh. And I just pushed my thumb on it and started shoving that, trying to break the energy. And all of a sudden I could see it kind of disperse. And once that happened, all of a sudden Joyce was able to start kind of moving again. And she looks at me, she's got tears in her eyes. And she said, what did you do? And I look at her and I have tears in my eyes. And I said, Joyce, I have no freaking idea what I just did. But then I told her what I saw. And Joyce looked at me and she said, Jesse, you have, you have something more to offer. Like you need to, you need to lean into that and explore. And I think that that's always been something in the back of my mind. And I feel like for a lot of us too, we go through life knowing that we have something more we can offer or we want to offer. Mm-hmm. It's just, we haven't learned how to lean into it. You know, in fact, we've been conditioned the exact opposite to lean away from it because you're supposed to go to school, get the job, do the work, do this, do that, do that. And we, we play this game of life for safety and comfort. Right. Versus really what would it look like if I was to allow myself to just be completely free to pursue and thrive in the way I want. Right. So when you finally figure out that she, t- well, she tells you you have more. So now you're, it's kind of opening your mind to thinking, well, are you questioning? You're like, maybe I do. Maybe yes. this is, and I do need a new you know, direction than personal training, right? Yes. So how do we get from that moment to really helping people in that way? Yeah, it was, again, you know, purpose is ultimate pain, ultimate pleasure. I have, pain has guided me through my life in the sense of, I, I, shortly after that, I went through my first broken heart. So awkward, shy, insecure Jesse ends up with a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And this was not the, the healthiest relationship, but it was a relationship. And it was one of those relationships where some of us have probably been in these before, where we're in the relationship and we know we probably shouldn't be in the relationship, but we're terrified of being without the relationship. Right. We have so much of our identity becomes in that. And for someone like me who was so lacking self-confident that that gave me, it filled a void that had been there for a long time. It was like the space inside of me. And while it may not have been the best fill, it was a fill. It was something which felt better than nothing at the time. And when that happened, it kind of tore open the floodgates and it gave me this opportunity where really I had this fork in the road moment where I can continue life exactly how I am. And I will probably end up right here, but just more time will pass. Or I can go down this path, which is scary as heck to even consider. But I feel like I need to because I don't ever want to end up back feeling how I'm feeling right now. I started to go down that path and it really led me down this life, this path of self-discovery, self-growth. I would get to a point where I would feel like I would start to make progress. And I had this right at this point where I felt like life was really great. And then I had an amazing group of friends, really close group. Career was going well. And then my friend Gabe took his life. And when Gabe took his life, it was this loss of, I I was there, found him when he was still alive, did the whole CPR, got him to, you know, call 911, everything. And when that happened, I started to look at life in a different way, the fragility of it, challenging things, questioning things. I would see relationships fall apart. The lady who I was dating at the time, she left because she couldn't handle me being sad and just being myself, the person that she had gotten in a relationship with. I went through that, went through, and right after Gabe happened, my dad passed away. My dad was a, and it was interesting having Gabe and dad so close together because there was this dynamic of Gabe looked at life as 
it, it was, it was the idea of having more time was so hard in this place he was in. And so time was the enemy for him. Whereas my dad had gone through cancer for the last few years just to try to earn more time. And my dad, two weeks before he died, had just gone in from the checkup with his doctor. Doctor looks him in the eye, congratulations, Mike, you're cancer-free. You have more time ahead of you. And two weeks after that, he drops dead. Wow. These two people, one huh. terrified of time, one is trying to get time. For one time is the enemy, the other time is the goal. And it was this interesting juxtaposition to look at because I think all of us have probably felt that at some point in our life where we're trying to get to somewhere, but we're off or at another time where we're just like, gosh, I just don't want to feel like this anymore. We may not have that, those extreme thoughts of the, in our life, but time very much seems like an enemy. And when, you know, especially when we're hurting, going through those two, two experiences, it invited me to begin to explore myself a little bit deeper and really become more curious about humanity. Hmm. The questions I began to ask from that is what does it take for someone to get to one extreme or for my father my dad was one of those people who lived his life for the safety and comfort. So it was making sure there's shelter, making sure there's food. And then what are the comforts you can add to that? Getting us, you know, getting cable TV, being able to hang out, watching NASCAR, but put off all the other stuff that you really want to do. My dad was one of those ones who died with most of his dreams inside of him. Mm. And Gabe was one of those ones that died before I think he could even begin to allow himself to fully dream because he never got to explore how great he could become. That really got me curious because I, I remember someone saying, and I don't remember who it was, but the, you'll never find more wasted talent than in the graveyard. Right. I've heard that. More, yes. more unrealized dreams than in the graveyard. And I just, I began to look at people that way. I would see people when I, they'd be walking around, I'd see this person has dreams, this person has dreams, this person has dreams. So what's keeping them from that? How are, are people who are dreaming and realizing them, how do we help them dream bigger? How do we help them dream the dreams that are going to change and impact the world for all these other people? And it just, it set me off on this incredible quest of really self-discovery and, and learning about people and understanding the humanity and what drives us, what motivates us, what challenges us, what makes us us. What are you doing as a job at this time when you're doing this discovery? I had made this so, in between this, I was still training mostly full-time, but I had started to make the shift into coaching and exploring it. I didn't really dive headfirst into coaching until 2012, so I was, I was closing out training then and still relying mostly on it, but was leaning heavily. My whole world, when I wasn't with clients, was about developing what coaching and speaking was going to look like for me. Hmm. I know how your podcast, you have three, Healing from Loss was your first one, and Handful of Hope is going on now, and then Building a Bridge is your newest one. But it's, the first two are about loss right? Because you've, you've dealt with that a lot and you're, you help a lot of people that have handled, that have had to deal with loss. Why, you know, when you think of meeting the, you know, having Gabe commit suicide and losing your dad around the same time, do you feel like there's a reason that, that, you know, like, just like, this is your purpose to help people? Do you look at it that way? Yeah. I, so just to clarify, the healing from loss was a, is a course I have. And then the the handful of hope was one I, I created just to support people through COVID. That's uh, once COVID and everything started up in March, I started creating the handful of hope podcast. So that's a very, it covers a very broad spectrum of, of folks. And yes, absolutely. To your point, like I, I began to look at that as that there's a reason these things are happening. I'm going through these life experiences and I would be doing these people who I love and care about a massive disservice. If I just let their passing be just that it was just a natural progression of life. I was very intent on making their, their loss meaningful and that it was going to be something where, you know, I've, I've long had it be like this. I say it's a passion project of mine to help ease emotional suffering for folks. And I would create these different programs like the healing from loss course or these different opportunities of things or doing the mentorship with different people who have gone through it. Because again, I feel like so many of us have so much potential to make this world such an incredible utopia for all of us. 
And I recognize that so many of us never realize that potential because when life happens, whether it's the death of a loved one, an end of a relationship, a loss of a job, some sort of loss, an identity loss, you know, things like that. Like, oftentimes, I think in, in the grief world, we may discriminate loss and we, we categorically rank it you know, in terms of this loss is more severe than this loss, which mm-hmm. is a thing to do because what you're doing then is you're minimizing what somebody else is feeling. What somebody else is feeling in their unique experience with your unique time is just that. It's what they're feeling. Many of us may not have been had the opportunities to feel at the extremes of losing this type of person or losing this kind of dynamic. We only know what we know. And when we're in the throes and the deep feels of our losses, especially if it's something where we are, we're meaning makers, human beings are, and we're making a massive meaning around that, you know, mm-hmm. whatever that goes through. The emotions, grief, despair, sadness, depression. You can put somebody who's lost a spouse and somebody who's lost a job and the way they would describe their emotional experiences might be almost identical. Mm -hmm. And I just, it would break my heart to see that because I felt like it was, that was the poison that would lead to so many people dying with their dreams inside. Because when so many of us go through loss, we draw this line in the cement and that line says, this is how life was, and this is how now life can never be, because what was is gone. And there's this decision we almost make that we die, a part of us dies with that person or with that identity or with that phase of life. And I was really curious about how do we spring the new phase of life? What is the new chapter? How can we write this next chapter as being not better than the past one, but amazing in its own right. Do you believe, what are your beliefs on death? And when you help people, what are your beliefs? Yeah, I believe each of us, all 8 billion of us are here for some sort of reason, some sort of purpose. I think that whether we, I think personal choice enters into the fray when we choose if we're going to fulfill and seek out that purpose or not. I believe that there is a, I don't believe in coincidences. I just don't, if coincidence was running my life, I should have won the lottery a thousand times by now, but I, <laughs> totally. the, but I have, I have coincidentally had some just incredible encounters, experiences. I believe that we're still able to connect to our loved ones after we've lost them. And I believe in terms of other losses, whether it's an identity or a relationship, the, the teachings, the learnings, the stuff that we really need to take away from that, that's always available and accessible to us. I think that there is a, whether it's God, universe, source, spirit, whatever it is for someone, I think that there's something that is much greater than all of us. And I, I don't have the, the education, the language, the awareness to even begin to dip a toe into guessing and describing what exactly that is. But I know for myself, my life has been shown time and time again that there is definitely something going on here that I don't have the language to explain. But I do believe in that, and I do trust in that. But do you believe that, like, we'll see, you'll be with your dad again? Yeah, I don't look at it so much as that, as much as I think my dad's always with me. Mm-hmm. Do you look I, for I, signs? Are you a sign person or numbers or anything like that? Yeah, I'm much more of a a listener. And what I've learned, especially with death is we have to stop listening with our ears and start listening with our heart. And it's often in the silent whispers that we will find our loved ones when they're present and they connect with us. And I will, you know, I will often talk to whether it's friends or family members or whomever often almost every day. And there are times where it's a strange thing, but there's a feeling that I, I choose to believe somebody could question this, but for me, I choose to believe that that's very much them because there's this feeling. I think that there's two pieces of loss that we should look at when we're talking about death. There's the physical loss, but what we also mourn is we mourn the emotional loss, the loss of the belief that I will never, it's how that person made us feel. And when they die, we have this unspoken belief that then I will never feel that way as that person is now gone. Emotion is really incredible. Emotion supersedes and out exists physical body. When we're not with somebody, we still can feel deeply for them. We don't have to be in their physical presence to feel deeply for them. 
And I think that sometimes in death, it gives us an opportunity to get to know, get to know our loved ones in an even deeper way than we would have known them in life. Mm-hmm. That kind of removes all the bullshit. Right. It really does in some ways. It removes that. It removes our own expectations going back to that. Oh, you should cook. Why haven't you ever cooked? Right. It to start to see them for these little bits of magnificence that they are, that we may not ever be aware of or acknowledge why they're physically here. And hopefully that's inspiring to, for anybody listening to this, to go out and reach out to the people in your life and just acknowledge them for their little magnificences. When you do, it really does make a profound difference with them. Yeah. So, so amazing. I was reading about your other friend that had passed away in a car accident and how you have a new that event. Could you explain that? Yeah. When, after I gave him, my father passed away and I found myself really struggling, struggling to be happy, to smile, to laugh, to love. I came up with this idea with a couple of their friends to do a thousand things I'd never done before in one calendar year. And uh, I won't go through all the rules with it, but in essence, I had to do one new thing every day. And at least, right? If yeah, a thousand, there's only 365 <laughs> yeah. days. Yeah. Holy so you have to do God. at least one, but you need to average close to three to make it. Huh. Uh, what I didn't want it to be is I didn't want it to just be a bucket list year. You know, you'll see about this. I wanted it to be something replicatable in the sense of it, what it was really about was living each day intentionally. So breaking out of my routine, breaking out of my habit and seeking out something new. You know, being a tourist in your own town and going to those landmarks that you, whenever people come to town, you only say, oh, those are for the tourists. Even though you've never been there yourself, right? Right. And all these types of things, like experiencing different things, challenging different things. And so there was one event in that, that was the most meaningful of the 1,022 things they did that year. It was creating this event called International Sunrise Sunset Day, where I invited people from all over the world to take a photo of the sunrise or sunset from wherever they were and share it on social media. And then I would put them together in like a little slideshow and, and post it on Facebook and put a message with it. Well, that first year we did it, we had, we had people from more than 30 countries participate. Oh, wow. Really, really incredible. And it was something that my friend who passed away, I remember I had sent him the video and showed him, he's like, dude, this is so cool. Well, a couple of years after that, he, he was killed in a car crash and his birthday's on September 12th. So what I did was, is I now migrated that, that event to an annual event where every year on September 12th, people from all over the world are invited to share a photo of the sunrise or sunset from wherever they are. And then they're encouraged to make a, either a, a financial donation to a nonprofit or organization or do an act of kindness in honor of someone they've lost. And it's really now it's about a day of September 12th is a day about celebrating the lives of the people we've lost and taking a time to, for me, sunrise and sunset is a very sacred time. And I think it's the opposite of that stillness we feel when we lose someone, that stillness that follows death, the stillness that we find as the day ends and the day, the day begins is this different kind of stillness that very much feels of life. And it's become this beautiful thing where now it's inviting people to have really that moment of stillness and reflection on those they've lost and then being intentional about doing something to celebrate them. That day. Uh, it's, it's incredible. We've had, I think, 110 countries, all seven continents, even Antarctica participate now. We've had, gosh, I don't know how many tens of thousands of photos submitted. It's really, really beautiful. Oh, you know, Jesse, I'll never look at a sunset again without thinking about you and that description. I love that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I will. You're, and I was looking at the pictures that you had put up because it's coming up. It's almost September to do it again. Yes, you have to participate. It's, yes. it's, really, it's really such a beautiful event. I love that. Oh, so great. But, you know, I think of, you know, you're in your late 30s and you don't have children. And... So I, I have two children and I'm trying to help these teenagers right now get their, like their mindset in the right way, you know, get their start now, right. Instead of wait. And I always help my girls and now I'm helping a few of Paige's friends and I'm hoping to grow that. But if you, if I was going to call you and say, Jesse, I'm trying to help these boys and these, you know, 14, 15 year old kids on getting their mindset right, starting some rituals that are important every day, you know, setting an, an intention for the day. What would you say are the most important things for kids to know these days to really set their life on the right track? 
because I think these are the years right now, especially now with this quarantine and, you know, starting school online. And, you know, I feel like a lot of these children are struggling. And as a mom, that's my first priority. And now when I see her friends and, you know, wanting to try to help them, what would be your advice if I called you and asked you? Yeah, I'd love, first of all, Ashley, I just want to acknowledge you for going there with that, because I think that, I think that kids, especially teenagers right now, probably have it harder than just about any other group. I think that this generation of teenagers has, is a generation where, you know, we've, we've given them such an unlimited access of dopamine with the technology, the digital stuff that it's, it's gotten them so conditioned to devices that it's made it. So there's, it's a tough thing to exist in the real world when we have all these things. And I think too, those of us who people who are parents or who are any of those types of things, we're so much more distracted probably than ever before because there's so many more things commanding our time. Mm-hmm. Seems like life continues to get bigger and bigger with more and more demands. I think that's really incredible that you're wanting to do that and help those kids because I think that I can imagine being a teenager at one time and feeling so lost and how much more lost I would likely feel at a time when we're all supposed to be more connected than ever before. You know, at the end of the day, all of us, we want to be seen, heard, understood, to feel like, to know that we matter and to feel like we're loved. And love is a tricky one with kids because a lot of times that's a, oh, mom, come on, you know, type of response. Mm -hmm. But there's a, I think the opportunity then with kids first is the seen, heard, understood, and mattered piece. And that's where I would lean into first because then the love will follow. Also, I think with kids, there's, all of us, we see community. We want to be part of community. We want to be connected. I think a lot of kids turn to gangs, not because they're violent and they want to do crime, but because they want to desperately feel like they belong. They want to desperately feel like they matter. They want to have community and a gang affords that. And then with the emotion of criminality, it adds an extra layer of intensity to it. There's exhilaration that can come with that. The thing I would consider then too is, first of all, how can you help kids create a sense of belonging and community? You know, the space that you're setting for them can be sacred and whatever sacredness looks like between you and that group, that becomes something that you can make a really magical community really quickly with it. The second thing is too, is I think to letting them know that anything they have to share, it matters. It bears significance just as they are. Because I think oftentimes kids probably feel that they're dismissed by their parents. They're dismissed by society. You know, what they have to say is kind of an afterthought as parents go through the busyness of their life they show up to school and maybe they're, they're known only by how qual- quality of their grade, especially if they're in that in-between space. The, the really good students and the really bad students only stand out, but the ones in the middle are kind of just that, they're the ones in the middle. Mm-hmm. So letting them know that there's, they have a belonging, they have a community, that, they, that you see them. You know, we don't often let people know that we see them because usually when we're talking to someone now, especially in modern-day communication, we're usually doing this. Mm-hmm. We're texting. We're, we're texting, yeah, something else. We're distracted. We, we like to think that we can multitask when really we're not. There's a really incredible study that was done multitasking, and they did it with uh, NASCAR drivers, I think. And they were showing these professional drivers trying to navigate a, a course where they throw these bouncy balls out, and they have to miss hitting the cones and all these types of things. So they take the driver through first, and the drivers, you know, these are professional drivers, the best of the best, and they do amazing. They never get hit. They avoid all the cones. And then they have the driver texting while they're driving. <laughs> drivers, the professional drivers, the best of the best. These are people who are used to going 200 miles an hour within a couple inches of space to get between one another. They fail massively. And if their whole world is about being so great at this one thing and they fail massively because they're trying to text and multitask, it just shows you how well we're all doing. I would make the space a sacred enough space where you can invite the opportunity to disconnect from technology and really be present and connect with one another. There can be a challenge to that at first because so many kids are going to have such a hardwired biochemical reliance on their technology that create separation could be difficult at first. But when you find the emotional component of that, that is more meaningful than to them, then that they will voluntarily make that separation. I think. Yeah. But, you know, I think of your, the way you were raised and the way your limiting beliefs kept you from believing in yourself and seeing this beautiful soul that you couldn't see in the mirror. 
And what if you had these belief systems that you had that you have now at in your 30s at 14, 15? Could you imagine your life, what it would be like? I mean, I just can't tell you how important that is as a mother. Like if I had that at that age, what your life it's limitless. And to know that life is limitless and that you can have, be, do, or have anything in your life, you know, and to put that in those little brains and to get their heads up yeah. and the blinders off and those yes. cell phones down. And the, yes. I can't tell you, I'm not a good mom on the cell phone, but you know, it's just this, this technology that I see even more now with friends and this age where they're now in lockdown and they don't have, you know, school to go to and they're, you know, sitting up in their room doing school or now the other one's waiting because her sister's at school and she's not. So, you know, it's like, I need to entertain her or we need to find something. And, you know, I'm trying to do all these things to have her grow and learn in this mindset. And it's a struggle. I mean, you're right. It's like this drug that they're so addicted to. And it's just such a different childhood. You know, we had more freedom and, you know, we didn't have our I mean, I'm 51, so, you know, we're a little bit different, but still like technology in the last 10 years, I tell Paige, she wants a baby picture. Can I see? I said, I didn't have a cell phone when you were born. And that was only 14 years ago. I mean, I had a cell phone, but you know, I didn't have an iPhone that could take pictures. Yeah. 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 You know, it's because she needed one for class. So we had to go in the baby books and take one, but you know, it's like such a, this technology has gotten so fast. You know, you think in 10 more years, if it's gone that fast, it's just going to be like, whoa. But it's just being a parent during this time is just that, you know, it's tricky, you know, and I feel like trying to keep balance and in this time that we've been in this home together and trying to, you know, limit that and be present and be mindful to teach their little brains these little mindset hacks that we've learned at this age you know, a parent right now, I feel for that and I want to help them. And I feel like, you know, where we would be if we were taught that right now, it would be amazing. Yeah. I think that so many of our technology devices become vehicles for us to try to find and seek out significance and meaning. Mm-hmm. It becomes a way we connect with our peer group, whether it becomes a game that we're playing and that we, we can feel the progression that we're good at, or it's an escape away from the world we've created in our mind. I think one of the things that kids are still up against is they probably get told no more than they're told yes. Mm -hmm. It's that whole, when am I going to use this in school? Why do I have to learn this? Well, you need to because you might use it sometime kind of mentality. And I think that if you're able to give them the yeses, but more than anything, you're able to create a, a space where they do feel like they are connected and they do feel significant that they matter that their presence is what matters. It's not just them physically being there, but it's them being there. It's the difference between somebody who's listening, watching to this right now, and then listening and watching to this in the background, whether doing something or they're sending emails or whatever it is, versus because we're inviting that right now, them stopping and just paying attention and really honing in on the energy exchange that's going on between you and I, really honing in onto what's being communicated here at the deeper level. And we become more intentional about creating that space with our kids, creating that kind of environment with them. Because I think if we don't, we're always going to seek meaning, community, connection, significance in some way, shape, or form. And the more we feel an absence of being loved, the more we're going to probably go to more extremes to try to substitute that. Right. So if we can get really good at showing kids that, who they are and what they have to say is what matters. You know, that no matter what kind of thing that they're talking about, be if, they, if they're wildly passionate about some sort of computer game or cell phone game they're playing, that might seem difficult discussion for us to go into because we don't even know what the heck the game is, let alone how to communicate about it. We don't have to talk about the game. What we want to talk about is we want to talk about what the game means to them. We want to invite that line of questioning that maybe they don't have before. Well, why do you like that game? What do you feel when you play that game? Why do you resonate with that character? What is it, the ultimate outcome? Oh, well, the ultimate outcome is to win. Well, what does win mean? It means you do this. Well, what does that mean to you? And what we'll be able to do is by doing that, it's just like translating a foreign language. If we, if we pull out our Google Translate now and we're somebody speaking Spanish and we put it through there, all of a sudden it'll go into language that we understand. 
if we're willing to hold that space to ask those questions, what we'll be able to do is we'll be able to translate a language that kids may use that we may not understand at first, but if we're willing to have the patience and love them enough to do that, we will be able to find a common tongue that we can share. And you'll be able to have probably some of the most meaningful and powerful discussions with those kids, meaningful, powerful discussions that they will remember for the rest of their lives. And you will too. Oh, that was beautiful. Wow. Just even watching you say those words and where that was coming from, that people will learn, that will be a note taker. That that really made an impact on me. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Thank you for asking and holding that space for kids. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so excited and just can't wait to change their lives. But um, we're getting on to the hour and I've taken over almost an hour of your time. But, you know, I was thinking there's so many things I didn't get to ask you, but if there's one thing I haven't asked you that you wished I did, what would that be? That's a really good, no pressure question at all. (laughs) (laughs) There's one thing you didn't get to ask me. I feel like there's so much that I didn't ask. And I thought, what if, what would be one thing that I didn't get to share about Jesse? Yeah. You know, this is something I'm kind of leaning into right now. I think that vulnerability is the ultimate human superpower, or at least it's one of them. Mm -hmm. I think that we have tragically been taught the exact opposite. And I think that in, in not just maybe Western culture, but many cultures around the world, we are taught to suppress or depress our emotions, to not be vulnerable and to not share stories, to not go through and share our hurts, to kind of suck it up, carry on, stiff up your lip and all that. But I really do think vulnerability is a superpower. And I am desperately afraid of what the mental health fallout from all this time with COVID and everything's going to be, how it's going to affect different populations. We're starting to see some data coming out. I am terrified that the fallout from mental health from this is going to far outpace over time what we're dealing with right now with COVID. And I say that because I think one of the things that is going to be paramount in helping support folks who are really struggling through the mental health piece is it's going to be our willingness to be vulnerable because so many of them, their suffering comes not from just what's happening, but because of the belief that they think that they're the only ones going through it. Mm-hmm. We were in those painful times and in our most painful moments, part of the hardship of it is, is it feels so alone. It feels so lonely and isolating because we can't imagine anybody else feeling this way, especially when we start to think about our people and we think of them as being strong or this or that. I would encourage each of you listening to this. And if any of what we've said and shared today resonates with you at all, I would really invite you to consider how can you be more vulnerable with the folks in your life? That's your friends, your family, your children, whomever it is, or if you're out there in the public space, how can you be more vulnerable with your audience? And what that is for you, and it's going to be different for all of us, but it's it's in sharing those parts of ourselves, those parts that we may not be the most comfortable with, and parts that we may not be the most proud of, or whatever the story is we put behind them. I really think those are the parts that we'll be able to find relatability with one another. We feel a deeper connection. We feel like we get to know each other. Don't we feel like we know each other a lot sooner if we talk about the the ooh, not so good stuff that we do go through the pleasantries of what do you think of the basketball game? Right. And, and it's, it's, I would say that it's really, when you're looking at what are the human superpowers, I would say vulnerability, one of them. I think that's what I would, I would invite everybody to explore. I love that. One of my things that I do with the girls and boys that I'm working with right now are have every day. And I, I've done this with my girls since they were, they could write on a, in a journal, but they have to write three things they're grateful for, two people that they're going to make an effort toward, you know, at that age, you know, being vulnerable, going to someone and saying how pretty they look or your hair looks good. How is soccer game? How, you know, engaging, making an effort and not waiting for what they're going to give back. And then they have to have one goal for the day and it can be, you know, anything. I learned to tie my shoe today or, you know, whatever, but to have these kids right now writing the the three things and then, but, the two people and they have to be different people, different friends each day. And we're not in contact with these people, you know, we're all on zoom and everything. So it's making an effort. And my lesson to that, these children, these teenagers is, you know, you have to be vulnerable. You have to go out of your Mm -hmm. comfort box and make someone's day. And I want an answer that you did. And I want them to reply to, if it's a text or a call, you comment back to me and say, they said I made their day. And see that you have to have two of those a day. 
but it's so important to go out of outside and, you know, make them realize like you need to make a difference. Make, don't you want to see your, when you give something to someone, how happy they are, you're giving yourself a gift and them, you know, and to teach them instead of being so in their blinders on their phone and, you know, not looking at life that way. And I love, so ending on our interview on being vulnerable and being that way and seeing what a difference that is when you take that step. It's magic. Magic. <laughs> sure, that's magic for them too. You know, it's probably magic that your kids will remember the rest of their lives. Yeah. Oh, Jesse, I've loved this so much. I could keep going. Will you um, give my listeners where we can find you? Is it Facebook, a website, Instagram? Yeah, every, everything is Jesse Brizen9 and com. Ask Jesse Brizen9, type in it pops up pretty quick. I think the only thing that's not just my full name is I think Twitter is asked or asked at Jesse Briz, but Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all those things. It's Jesse Briz. Okay. Anyway, love you. It was so great to spend this time and get to know you better. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, Ashley Brown. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the uncover your magic podcast today. If you are inspired by what you heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you would like to connect with me with any questions, comments, or feedback, please contact me at the Uncover Your Magic website. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, always look for the magic.